And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, I've told you some pretty crazy things over the years, but what if I said that you are delusional? Well, don't worry. I'm delusional as well, as is the rest of humanity. And I'm going to talk to Dr. Stuart Weiss, who's on the show today, to discuss his book, The Uses of Delusion. And we are going to get to the bottom of this interesting phenomenon, and that is humanity, we like to think of ourselves as rational creatures, but in fact, we are guided by irrational thoughts and behaviors. And here's the surprise, it's a good thing. It's not bad. You would think it would be, but in fact, it is the key to our survival, the key to our excellence as a species. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there, a lot of weird stuff to talk about. We're going to get into that with Dr. Stuart Weiss. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So I want to get a couple of things. I want to make sure that I get everything right here, Stuart. So okay. you're a doctor. This you're Doctor Vice, which Let's, sounds medieval. Sounds like a medieval, you know, torture king. Yeah. Exactly. Well, actually, so here's the slightly less evil. The name is actually pronounced right. Vice. Oh, Z sound. So it's good you it's good you brought that up. So I, and, and it is. I'm sure that you know. I don't know that it's always been that way, but it's the way I learned it, and I'm mm-hmm. sure it is in part to avoid that other. You know, <laughs> that other yeah. implication. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. So Vice, I want to make sure I get it right. So it's yeah, Vice, Dr. Vice. OK, that's right. right. I like Dr. Vice. I may call you I mean, Dr. You can Vice. Call me Stuart. You can call yeah. me Stuart. I'm not, okay. you know, I'm not I don't stand on ceremony. What about Big Stu? What about Beef Stu? You like uh, <laughs> we're that close to keeping it Stuart? Yeah, that's fine. All right, yeah, all right, Stuart. We'll keep it I like Stuart. Okay, well, so I want to make sure I get this right. So you are a contributing editor for Skeptical Inquirer, which that sounds like the exact opposite of the National Inquirer, right? I mean, you guys are kind of (laughs) opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah? Debunkers, into rationalism, and all of that. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's it's a it's a science magazine basically, and I Mm. and I get to write a a science column for them uh, called Behavior and Belief. So. Well, it seems like you're an expert in superstition, which is about behavior and belief and irrational behavior. Uh, and I'm taking this from your website. You have an academic interest, which I, I love that, in the belief in the paranormal. Now, just to be clear, do, do you have an academic interest in your belief in the paranormal or those who believe in the paranormal? Uh, yeah, I don't believe in the paranormal. So that's okay. that's the quick answer to your question. But I am okay. very interested in it. And, and I'm also I'm kind of interested in the larger issue of things that typical, regular, off-the-street people do that don't quite make sense, you know, that mm-hmm. are irrational. And we, you know, we, we're we supposed to be these big-brained, you know, really smart people, but mm-hmm. normal people do some pretty weird things. And yeah. uh, and so so I started out being interested in superstition, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it got broader to paranormal and then just to irrational things in general. And uh, I find it fascinating uh, and, and sort of humbling to, uh, to study why people do things that don't entirely make sense. 
Well, it's funny because I consider myself to be an extraordinarily rational, almost Spock-like logical person, (laughs) which doesn't serve me well in this world. (laughs) And and after reading your book, I was like, oh, my God, like not only do I suffer from several delusions, but society as a whole uh, believes in a lot of irrational thought and you know, just irrationality. And yeah, I don't know. It it kind of blew my mind, Stuart. Uh, You you stumbled onto something here. And I did an episode, you know, you, you teed me up early for, you know, I like to stick in a shameless plug early. Uh, I did an episode on superstition, but that was the history of superstition. You deal more with the belief in superstition. And we're going to get into some of that later, especially when it comes to sports, because I love sports superstitions. I don't know if you're a sports guy, Stuart, but I sure love sports superstitions. Yeah. Uh, sports has been a great source of superstition for me. I'm, I I yeah. there are just so many great examples of it. So I, I look forward to get, talking about that. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be fun. So before we get into delusion, Stuart, I, you know, speaking of sports, I got a curveball for you. We're going to start off in a different place um, because there's there's a couple. You're actually an expert in, in a couple of things. But one, I'm going to call you. You're kind of the extrovert when it comes to being an introvert because you've written a series of essays on the topic. My favorite is why I hate the beach. Uh, And this is great because the beach is kind of one of those weird things that's I don't know if it's universally loved, but it seems to be loved by, you know, we're not the only mammal who likes to hang out on the beach. You know, the human beings have kicked out a lot of mammals from beaches to make sure that we can sit in the sun on a weekend. Uh, I have to stick in my political agenda there about, you know, man kicking nature out of its own habitat. Uh, But, you know, so when it comes to the beach, you got serious opinions on it. So let's talk about them. How did you come to these and how did you become the crazy old man shaking your fist saying, get off my sand? <laughs> well, it's not, I, I'm, I'm quick to get off the sand myself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I did start writing this series of essays. I just threw them out on Medium. And, uh-huh. uh, and the very first one really kind of went viral. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have read it. And it's mm-hmm. the title of which is uh, The Introvert's Guide to Greeting uh, strangers, vague acquaintances, and friends. And it's sort of like in the mode of, yes, it's sort of in the mode of, uh, you know, you are in the shopping, you're in, you're in the grocery store and you yeah. and then you say like, is that my kid's second grade teacher or not? And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, it, it was very popular. And so I started writing a whole series of them. I, I yeah. discovered I was an introvert. Uh, uh-huh. but, but, um, but then I was also once on vacation in uh, in Rio de Janeiro, actually, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is great. I'm going to go to Rio, and and you know, and then I get there, and it's basically all beach, right? There's there's, oh, yeah. I mean, there are a few other things you can do. All beach, uh, no no swimsuits, by the way. There, yeah, <laughs> a lot well, of skin. <laughs> it was a little chilly while I was there, so it was, yeah, so that also care. may have colored it. But I just realized after spending a few days there that I just don't enjoy the beach, and I mm. and I and I sat down and wrote. The, I wrote the essay. I think I started it at least in my hotel room in Rio. And, uh, and <laughs> if you can believe it indoors, right? Not the yeah. beach was right out there. Although the right. beach looks beautiful, I will admit yeah. that. And, uh, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I have spent a lot of time on, on the beach and I realized in hindsight that I didn't really enjoy much of it. So, well, I will tell you, I, I am, I'm kind of, I'm kind of ambivalent to the beach. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. You got tons of beaches everywhere, beautiful beaches. But you bring up some great points here uh, because you discuss the, your hatred of sand, which is true because, you know, it makes sandpaper out of everything. Your underwear, uh, your, your your sandals, you know, your towel. Uh, you talk about how everyone kind of 
dumps things into the sand, how, you know, animals defecate in it. You say the beach is a combination of cat box, ashtray, and trash receptacle that practically naked people frolic in, (laughs) which is great. Uh, You talk about volleyball, and I'm a big beach volleyball fan. I love it. But the one thing I don't love is the fact that there's no solid ground underneath you, and you bring that up. Uh, You know, why play volleyball on the shifting, uneven surface in the hot sun? You know, uh, and you talk about about suntan lotion and you've got beautiful ways to describe this, Stuart. You talk about the love of the sea and that you're mesmerized by the constant movement at the borders between the solid and liquid world, which is extraordinarily poetic for someone who doesn't like the beach. But it shows that very specific point of view that you have, which is I love looking at the beach. I love that the beach. I recognize the beach is right to exist. I just don't want to partake in it physically. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do appreciate the beauty of nature and, and, and the beach and, you know, the, the edge of the ocean is definitely a, a wonderful place. I actually live uh, within sight of, of the ocean here in mm. Connecticut. So, so I spend a lot of time, you know, looking out to the water, but uh, from whence we came, right? Uh, yeah. But, right. but, uh, but uh, the idea of being one of those people under an umbrella or you know sitting out there. I mean, when I'm when I'm in leisure, I typically want to read. And as I say in that essay, the beach is, turns out not to be a great place to read. I would rather, as I finish the piece, I I would rather just sit at a bar near the right, beach right, with right, my yeah. book and a drink and be able to yeah. see the water. But, right. you know, when I look up, that's that's my ideal beach experience. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad one. Um, you know, I mean, I will tell you two things. Number one, when it comes to the ocean, I don't like the ocean. As longtime listeners will know, I'm terrified of sharks. And my belief that there's one hiding around every wave is a delusion because there's no way that that exists. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, speaking of reading, a great read is The Uses of Delusion by Dr. Stuart Vise, which we're going to talk about. Um, and I, I've, when I finished this book, Stuart, I felt I was kind of I was kind of at odds with myself because I recognized you bring out a lot of points that. Delusions are important for human survival. We have to do a lot of different things we're going to get into to kind of convince ourselves to get through life, really. And it made me think, Stuart, and I'm going to pose this to you right off the bat. It made me think that it's possible that the nihilists were exactly right and that the world is almost too depressing to consider. Life may, in fact, be really meaningless. Human values are truly a construct of, 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 of without any real substance. So do we need these delusions? Are they an evolutionary advantage in order to get through life, which is probably, you know, us just swimming around a rock in a vast sea of emptiness? Well, you've hit on it. Uh, I, I think. Did I? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I, I mean, I do talk about Camus in the book and the idea that, you know, life is meaningless ultimately. Uh, and and yet that that, you know, that is a non-starter for most people. You don't want to sure. say you mean it's, it's meaningless and I have a lot more of it left. <laughs> right. You know, that, especially you don't want to start a podcast like that. But exactly. <laughs> well, that's what we exactly. did. Right. That's where exactly. we started. <laughs> and we're going there. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
But yeah, no, I, I, I think that we do need these delusions to, to keep going and to, and to have the sense that we are going to succeed and so forth. And I do think that there's an evolutionary, I mean, I can't prove it. I mean, I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just, uh, you know, speculating, but, but yeah. I do believe that these are evolutionary uh, things that we've, that, that we've, that we've acquired over the years. Uh, and that the, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to get people to be more rational, right? Mm -hmm. That's my, my prior to this book, <laughs> I know. And that's the whole skeptical inquirer yeah. thing and everything, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and yet I've come to realize with this book uh, that, you know, rationalism and reason and logic are tools, mm -hmm. very valuable tools, which have produced, you know, the equipment that we're using today and all sorts of other wonderful things. Absolutely. But but uh, but it's just one tool, and it's not every tool in our in our you know uh, you know our repertoire. So so we need some of these other ones as well. And and so I, it, it, to me, the book was actually uh, in a sense of an act of humility. It was like I've been banging this drum for such a long time, and I keep mm -hmm. realizing I keep running up against cases where the rational thing, at least for the for some people, the rational thing is not the best thing for them in the right. in, in certain circumstances. Uh, and so and so I felt like I kind of needed to acknowledge that, and I and I I was able to come up with you know quite a few examples of that, and and a book resulted. So so I'm I feel like I'm sort of fleshing out the picture of human behavior and human capability. I mean, I think I think that's exactly right, because, you you know, cold, hard facts are just that they're cold, hard facts, you know, and we are a loving, warm species. We, you know, yes. we like the warm and fuzzy stuff. Uh, but let, let's define delusion, because I believe in the, in the book you say and you can adjust this as you want. But I believe it's a fixed belief that is not amenable to change in light of conflicting evidence, which is well, it seems pretty good. Is that is there more to that? Well, I also, I mean, that's that is a good definition, and that is a that is a uh, you know a, a common definition of it. I would I would also say that it's simply if you think about uh, you know what logic and 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 evidence would have you do. I talk mm -hmm. about the rational choice model in the book, which I don't think we need to get into, but it's, mm -hmm. but it's a fairly simple idea that if you if you are, for example, if you have uh, what we call epistemic rationality, which means mm -hmm. that your beliefs are good, right? Your beliefs are based on the best evidence that's available to you and are logical. Sure. That's one way you can be rational. And then you can also be uh, instrumentally rational, which means you do the right thing based on your best belief. And, mm -hmm. and people, people fail at both of those. The book is primarily about Having you know bad beliefs uh, that nonetheless I, mean, I don't mean bad I mean uh, irrational beliefs that right. nonetheless right. help you help you in some way. And irrational I think irrational has a weird connotation uh, and I and I think you're using it in the most dictionary definition which is not rational right like right. there's no real there's no stank when you say irrational it just happens to be things that are not that are not based in fact or are counterintuitive to what facts are saying exactly. um, which is which is interesting oh, i want to mention this really quickly before we get i want to have a great the great first example of the book but you mentioned i think you mentioned this earlier but the paradoxical the paradoxical nature of our species which is we are extraordinarily intelligent arguably if not the most intelligent being on the planet, we, we definitely believe we are the most intelligent, which is another delusion, which we'll get into. <laughs> uh, but but we, we routinely do things that are counterintuitive 
to me, that's the definition of humanity. Extraordinarily intelligent, yet are habitual counterintuitive doers. You know, I mean, that's kind of like what we are, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and one of the, one of the facts, the, the factors that I talk about in the book quite a bit is that we are smart enough that we can see ourselves doing this thing that doesn't make sense and be completely mm-hmm. aware of it, right? And so, right. Yeah. so there yeah. is this sort of dual consciousness. There's, it's you know, it's an everyday thing where you say to yourself, "I really probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway," right? Oh, yeah. In terms oh, yeah. of a sim- simple self-control sort of situation. But there are other examples in the book where there is that sort of double consciousness that that the person knows that what they're thinking isn't doesn't make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. completely. And yet they kind of need to think it in order to get through. Right. Well, I mean, my grandmother, uh, my 96 year old grandmother is a good example because I cannot tell you, she is the most super, she's from the old country. So she's like mm. superstitious and super anxious. And in a weird way, she's 96, right? Who am I to start yeah. breaking down rationally what she needs to do to get through? Clearly it's working. Like, what am I doing right. stepping in? So in some ways we are two illogical beings going at each other, trying to pretend we're using logic, right? I mean, that's, right. that's human, that's human nature. Yeah. Uh, so now, and I think this is based on really quickly, uh, you talk about how our brain has two different systems. One that kind of thinks quickly and makes decisions based on past experiences. And one that is slow and weighs the pros and cons of each. I like that you start out with this because in some ways, it's kind of interesting how our culture is kind of doing... We have a a weird time in our culture where we are evolutionarily programmed to make quick decisions about things and people based on other experiences with similar things, people, and situations. And yet we're, we're we're asking our brains, because we have the ability to take a second to weigh the pros and cons of things, that is in some ways completely counterintuitive to how our brain works, which which is interesting to look at rationally. But, you know, we ask a lot of people to do things that our brains are not capable of under the belief that our brains can do anything. And I like that you start the book out explaining these two systems because I think it explains a lot and will help people understand that, like, our brain can't do everything. It is it is still wired, you know, right. and it has to do yes. it has to follow a certain protocol. Uh, but, but tell me a little bit about that before I start going off on a tangent. Sure. So that's this is called the dual processing model, and it's very popular. It was it was made popular in part by uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a big best-selling book called Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's what it's about. That 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 we have sort of two ways of processing. It's a metaphor for for something that seems to be true, mm-hmm. but but that we have uh, a quick acting sort of intuitive you know, way of, of, you know, looking at a situation and making a judgment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, and then that's system one, clever name, huh? System one. Right. (laughs) And, yeah. And, uh, and then the second one is the slower, but much more capable. It's more like Mm -hmm. a computer, you know? So, so the, you know, the example is that, that when you go out to a restaurant, you know, your system one is probably the one that's going to, you know, choose what you want to eat that day, just sort of based on your emotions. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, if you have to calculate the tip, 
system two <laughs> system two is going to have to you know you know be be charged with that duty right. so uh, or so, calories by the way not just tip exactly, calories yes. you know <laughs> very important yeah yeah uh, but but the, yeah so the, and and the thing is that they do operate in parallel one we you know we sent we they have a tendency to use system one because it's mm-hmm. quick uh but they, but they do, in some cases, operate in parallel, and we are, we are aware of the, a conflict between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I just find that so interesting because in so, you know, in a lot of ways, the first acting brain is kind of like our amygdala. Like it's the it's the things mm-hmm. we process immediately think. But that gets us into trouble. when We start processing things too quickly when we should probably take a second to consider. And I think that's kind of the basis of everything we're going to talk about. Uh, one of the things, the first experiment you talk about in the book I almost didn't believe that it was true, right? Because this doesn't work for me. And this is the the jelly, the red jelly bean experiment. Uh, and and really quickly, I'm just going to breeze through this. You know, you have a bowl. You got you know nine white jelly beans, one red jelly bean, uh, and the, the I think you there's like a well, is there a you have to pay money and you get? I think I'm screwing this no. up already. Wait, <laughs> Would you like me to take over? Yeah, yeah, you take it over. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm mucking this up. It's okay. Yeah, so so it's a simple experiment where you're going to you're going to earn a dollar. This was done ah, okay. long right. a long time ago when a dollar was probably worth a bit more. But you're worth gonna, a million. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but you you get one pick, uh, and your and your goal is to is to get a black jelly bean. Right. Mm. They're black and white jelly beans, and they're two different bowls. You, you can choose which bowl you want your single pick to come from. One bowl has one black jelly bean and nine white, right? So mm-hmm. 10% chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the large bowl has uh, 10 black and 90 white. Mm-hmm. So still 10%, mm-hmm. but it's a much larger bowl. And when they did this, this experiment, uh, it was done by Seymour Epstein at the University of Massachusetts, uh, People wanted to pick from, what would you guess? Well, you know, you've read the book. So I have, they chose, yes. They, they chose, <laughs> and, and thank you for doing that. Uh, they chose from the larger bowl. The yeah. majority of people chose from the larger bowl, which which doesn't isn't a problem, right? Because it's equal, and so mm-hmm. it's just personal preference. But, sure. of course, they didn't leave it at that. And what they did was to substitute one of the black uh, jelly beans in the large bowl with a white one. So now... Now there was only a nine percent chance uh, of getting it in the large bowl, and there was still a ten percent in the small bowl because they didn't do anything to that. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, many people. Now at this point, you know, once you've done that, every person, the the ration, the, the system two brain is saying, mm-hmm. go to the small bowl. Yeah. You know, forget about the big bowl. You're now it's now there's no decision involved. You have to go with the other. Mm-hmm. And, and yet and yet a substantial per- percentage of the participants still chose the large bowl because they were distracted by those nine winning jelly beans and sort right. of forgetting the denominator. Right. Part. <laughs> right. Of it. And yeah. uh, so so that's yeah. that's one of those. That's sort of that conflict. Uh, they, they still want it. And then and they told them, you know, OK, now this has a nine percent chance and mm-hmm. this has a 10 percent chance which do you choose and right even with that prompt you know it's i mean it's so weird when i read that that's hard for me to believe but then yeah. i would tell my friends and they would say like yeah yeah that makes sense i totally understand that <laughs> and for me it's like like my brain is shorting yeah. out because it's, like it's a simple it's a simple numbers game you know yeah. um but th- but this is the foundation of what we're talking about because in some ways you know 
you talk about how the surest path to irrationality is believing something because you want it to be true, not because it is true. And, you know, conspiracy theories are a great example of this. Um, because you kind of ignore everything that's out of line with your belief system. And you talk about flat earthers as being an interesting example. And I watched this whole documentary on people who believe in the flat earth. And it it is really, it's really fascinating because people truly believe that there's a conspiracy to keep the world, like the, you know, the globalist, literally, the people who believe it's a globe, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. But it's, it's, it's interesting. And they refuse to use Occam's razor, which is the simplest path is, is most likely. And they would rather have an elaborate conspiracy because that fulfills the beliefs that they want. This is classical delusional behavior. And even if you're not a conspiracy theorist, there's lots of examples of this in our own life. Oh yeah, there. I mean, there are tons of them, and and I, I'm not suggesting that that's a useful delusion. Uh, that these are that's an unuseful delusion. <laughs> fair uh, enough. Fair enough. Know, right. Right. Uh, so yeah, I yeah. want to make that very clear from the beginning. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, that is that is a you know motivated reasoning is is what the larger term that's being used these days, and it's everywhere. You know, where where you you want to believe something because it's necessary for your group, or mm-hmm. f- for your identity, or just feeling good about being right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you 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 evaluate it very in a biased way, uh, ignoring the conflicting evidence. I mean, the, the thing about the flat earthers, as far as I can tell, the fl- flat earthers and the 9-11 truthers have sort of the same pro- hurdle to get over, which is that, you know, in the flat earth case, uh, there would have had to have been all these photographs, right, and, and all these moonshots and mm-hmm. all of these things that have gone on that show the earth as being round. There yeah. would have to be thousands of people who mm-hmm. were engaged in this, and no one has ever come forward to right. unburden themselves of the lie. No, we just made <laughs> right. it up with my, you know, yeah. they, they've all held to that, to that, uh, you know, false belief all these years. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's not very credible. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that that's the key. Um, I mean, I, I have, I had actually on this show, I had a gentleman who talked about us living in a simulated universe. Now, if you were to switch the rules of physics and our and our view on what reality is, I think you could say that, well, if it's a digital world, there is no flat and round. I mean, it's all ones and zeros, right? So you could do that. But then then you got to literally shift your entire paradigm. And then the facts change, and then rational and irrational are just turned on their heads, Stuart. Yeah. Um, but, so let's talk about some of the ones that are positive, because you talk about in the book, the first, the self-flattering delusions. And these are things that are better kept than, than gotten rid of. And there are three of them which is we have an unrealistically positive view of ourselves. We <laughs> definitely true nowadays. We believe we have more control over events than we do. And we only we have an overly optimistic view of the future. Now, now that's the last one. <laughs> I think, you know, that that may be Maybe. depending on the that, that one's a little. Yeah, yeah we got a lot of stuff Late, going on. Lately, lately, we may be uh, less yeah. less optimistic about that. I think yeah. it's mostly about our own personal futures that 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 applies to. I mean, mm. the larger future is very much in doubt at the moment. But, <laughs> but uh, very, very but much I, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, and so I think that the, your amazing part is interesting because, you know, in social media, you know, influencers prove every day. I mean, I, there's so many accounts that post pictures of themselves, right? I mean, that's the key to most people's social media. Uh, now, this was this was an interesting study, which I felt like I fell into this. Like, this is where I, I started to, this is my descent into madness, Stuart, is, is with this <laughs> particular study, which was showing that 
this was done in 1980, but it was showing that 87.5% of the population, they believe that they are an above average driver in regards to safety. And 60% of the people surveyed believe they were in the top 20. Now, this could be true, Stuart, if the people <laughs> surveyed, if the people surveyed were in fact, uh, you know, top 20 people, but that would be highly, you know, statistically yeah, improbable. Um, that's right. But, right. but, <laughs> right. But that's interesting because I do believe that I'm, you know, I'm a much above average safe driver. So I fell into the Stuart and I got scared. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to scare you about that, but, but it is, <laughs> but it is true. I mean, there, we, we are in many respects. I, I, by the way, I'm quite clear about the fact that I'm not an above average driver. I'm just want to put okay. that out there. <laughs> and I, and I have to be fairly, uh, you know, vigilant about that, but, sure. but the, uh, uh, and as do people around me. But, right. uh, yeah. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I think that I think that this is part of the. You know, I th I think this is built in, and it is something that that we need. And you know, going back to your mm. earlier, uh, you know, doomsday discussion about the meaningless of life, <laughs> right. I think that I think we have to have. And, and in fact, there's there's good evidence that that if you don't have an overly rosy view of your own mm -hmm. capabilities, that mm -hmm. you may actually, that may actually be an ingredient for, for good mental health. You know, that, mm -hmm. that if you have a realistic view of the, of the world, it means mm -hmm. you're depressed, right? Uh -oh. Rather than, rather than <laughs> being healthy. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. I, mean, uh -oh. yeah. well, <laughs> I call I mean, myself a realist steward all the time. I so I know. Mm -hmm. Well, that, yeah, uh, I, but I suspect you have these delusions too. The I do. the uh, the there's a study that a very famous study that I mentioned in the book, uh, in which people were asked to press a button to try to turn on a light that would flash. Mm. Right. Some, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes they would press it and it would flash. Other times it wouldn't, and mm. then sometimes it would flash even when they hadn't pressed it and so forth. And so then they asked these people at the end, "How much control did you have over the light?" Right. And uh, and the typical you know well-adjusted participant uh, overestimated the degree of control they had on mm. the light. However, mm. there were some participants in the study who were mildly depressed and they had a very accurate <laughs> view of how much they did. So, so the, the, the subtitle of the article is in uh -huh. fact, uh, sadder, but wiser. Right. 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 Uh, and, and so, I mean, it does suggest that the, that the normal well-adjusted person has mm. an, has an unusual, you know, rosy view of their, of themselves and, and their control over over the world. Accuracy comes with its cost is what you're saying, Stuart. Exactly. So exactly. I, I'm, I may be right, but I'm still <laughs> maybe yeah. not on, maybe I'm not mentally stable is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, well, you know, because this, we're, you know, this, this, I'm amazing. I'm calling it the I'm amazing. You may have done that. I may have stolen that from you, but this I'm amazing delusion is, is this really cool double-edged sword. I think it's a great way to start the book because confidence, you know, as you talk about and everyone knows is extraordinarily useful. I mean, you know, look, look to our look, look to any, you know, leader of a country uh, that if, right. if you just say something confidently, people believe it. Confident people, you know, do better in job interviews. They're more attractive to the opposite sex. Uh, you know, th there are significant advantages to being confident as long as you don't go into the realm of arrogance, you know, unless you're right. a sports star and then it's, it serves you perfectly well. <laughs> uh, but the downside of that is the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is one of my favorite ones, which is the less you know about a topic, the more confident you are in your abilities about it. Uh, and people tend to, 
you know, undervalue their, or is it, I think under, they underreport how smart they are at something, I believe. Yeah. I'm, I may be saying that incorrect. I, I may be falling victim to the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> effect. Uh, but I love this double-edged sword because confidence, good and bad, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to not be one of those two things. It's true. It's true. I try to parse out the places in which it's good and the places in which it's bad in the book. One of the clear distinctions that I make is uh, is when you're about to launch an enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. Confidence as you're starting out, and then confidence after you're already in engaged and mm -hmm. and working away, right? And I think that confidence as you begin a new enterprise, especially if there are downsides like financial ones. Or right. uh, in the worst case scenario, you're launching a war, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yep. Yep. Th that that overconfidence in those circumstances can be quite dangerous, right? And mm -hmm. hopefully that doesn't come up that often for us. But but in terms of just getting up and going to work and doing your job every day, overconfidence mm -hmm. can be very valuable. And as you suggest, you know, if you're if you're a, a leader, if you if it's your business or you're a manager and you have that sense of overconfidence, not only does it sustain you, but it's contagious. And you, mm -hmm. the people around you will, will work harder and, and, and do better as well. So, so it, again, it depends on the circumstance, but, but overconfidence, I think, sort of in the everyday, uh, you know, keeping going and keeping motivated, very important. Well, you bring up one thing in the book where confidence works, but it may not be a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I did an, uh, another episode of Fascinating Nouns with Elizabeth Loftus, who is the, you know, she is the the, the key expert witness when it comes to eyewitness testimony uh, in, right. in, in the courtroom. And you point out that if an eyewitness, eyewitness testimony is is completely, fa it's fallible. I mean, there, there's right. nothing, it, it's not, it's imperfect to, at at its best. But if you have an eyewitness step on the stand and they confidently say that they saw a person do X, they may convince a jury. That overconfidence, as you mentioned, it's contagious. You'll convince a jury. Doesn't mean you're right. Exactly. <laughs> you, and that can be, and has been extraordinarily dangerous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's thanks to Elizabeth Loftus and the research that she's done that now many judges and attorneys are aware of this problem and and uh, and, can, and can bring people like Elizabeth Loftus into court to sort of tone down the effect of the witness's confidence and, right. uh, and, and talk about how long it's been since the events happened and so forth. But yeah, no, that's fascinating stuff. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the confidence level of the witness bears absolutely no relation to the accuracy, uh, and right. which is it's a little bit frightening. And as you yes. say, it's persuasive to it's persuasive to juries, right? We mm -hmm. all say, I, and you know, in, in just in social interactions, you know, I'm absolutely sure this is what happened. You know, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, I, I do. Look, I do it all the time, Stuart. I cannot tell you how many times where I say this is absolutely true, and I'm norm. I'm mostly wrong. I hate to admit it, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not as yeah. accurate as I would like to think I am, but Stuart, that doesn't stop me from doing it over and over again. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Th this, this rang home. Uh, I, you know, I, one of the things that I, that you talk about is you compare being overconfident in some ways to how zombies and cyborgs move ahead, no matter, you know, no matter what you throw in front of them, just being overconfident, you're going to get the job done. You know, that's really true. And I don't want to say that I'm like a zombie or a cyborg, but I think in this case, or a shark for that matter, uh, this, you know, I'm kind of, that's a good thing though, Stuart. Absolutely. No, I, I talk about that. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned sports. I do watch mm. some tennis and I, mm. I enjoy tennis. And 
so, you know, I do think that the, there's always this situation where you have like a McEnroe-like player who goes into a big tantrum, right? Right. In the middle, yeah. right? And the, and the, and the, yeah. the uh, you know, the, the, the commentators always have some kind of, you know, mumbo jumbo about, well, this is how he psychs himself up and he's going to mm -hmm. come back and he's going to go on. But what they ignore is the, the fact that if there's another opponent on the other end of the court who's mm -hmm. seeing this, this go on, and if it were me, nothing would make me feel better than having my opponent go into a self-defeating sort of tantrum situation. Right. And I think right. that the, the most, you know, the most uh, effective approach is to just keep going. Even, even if you're behind, you just sort of like pick up the ball, serve and keep going in a cyborg-like fashion. And that, yeah. that is likely to be the most effective. Well, I, I play a lot of basketball, which is a little different than tennis. It's a contact sport. But I will yeah. tell you, uh, there are times where I've seen people get upset and then go and punch the wall. And I'm usually pretty scared of them because the next time coming on the court, they're going to the basket and, and someone's ended yeah. up on, a, on the floor. Uh, that's yeah, all yeah, I know. So, yeah. so I think it could kind a of A different game entirely. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fair enough. Uh, I do want to mention, you know, for, for all of my male listeners out there, I would be remiss if I didn't just close on this one little tidbit of information, which is you talk about how heterosexual men tend to overestimate how much another person wants to have sex with them. And you talk about that being ultimately an advantage because that overconfidence makes you take more chances. Ergo, just statistically, this is just math, Stuart. The more the more at bats you have, the more chances you're going to get a hit. So it's not a bad thing. It may be an annoying thing, and it may be something people don't like, but it is an advantage. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. In, in a world where men are usually the the aggressors in in those right. in sexual relationships, but yeah. that's uh, the but world yeah, I live true. in, Stuart. I live in you know, the, <laughs> I'm not a right. progressive. I live in the I live in the past. But yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a classic study that was done on a campus where they were where I think women just randomly walked up to men and said, "Would you like to go to bed with me?" Like strangers, just. And and then they did the opposite with with men uh, yeah. uh, approaching women. <laughs> I, I think the the women turned it down. I think almost universally, right? Almost yeah, I would like imagine zero. so. But but there were quite re relatively high number of men who, I, who said yes. I'll go, yeah. let's go. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I have no delusions about how that, that, is, that experiment did not need to take place. The outcome's uh, pretty, you know, pretty predictable. Obvious. Yeah. Uh, but so let's talk about delusional optimism. Now, I, I got to tell you, Stuart, uh, you know, if, if anyone, anyone who's familiar with my work knows that I am anti-optimism as a realist, right? I think optimism and pessimism are both ways to shade the world. And I personally believe that that is not the way you should walk through life. Well, that was before reading your book, but that is pre-Stewart. That was my belief in the world. But you talk about in the book how optimism, uh, delusional optimism and defensive pessimism are actually advantages. I like the second one because I would say that I, in some ways I'm more of a defensive pessimist than, an, than a delusional optimist. But I have to say, Stuart, you make a strong argument that delusional optimism is pretty handy. Yeah, I mean, do, delu, def, uh, there's delusional optimism and there's defensive pessimism. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they both, in the right circumstances, I mean, for example, in the in a chapter on health, I do talk about both. And, and But they're useful in different circumstances. Uh, so, for example, if there's a plague coming your way, 
And we now all have some experience with that, right? Yeah, hypothetically, if, if, of course. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, just to, just imagine. And yeah. uh, if if you are a defensive pessimist, you know, mm. who's worried, then you're likely to engage in defensive behavior that will protect you in mm-hmm. in that situation. You'll wear a mask. You'll avoid you know circumstances and so forth. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the optimist in that situation is probably not going to engage in the right kind of behavior and may encounter the plague when it comes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you flip the switch now to a situation where you're already sort of ill, you know, the status quo of health has been lost. Mm-hmm. At this point, pessimism is not your friend. You want mm-hmm. optimism. You want to be motivated to to regain your health, to do the things that you need to do and so forth. So it depends on the circumstance. The, the one thing mm-hmm. that is that is absolutely true is that no matter what the circumstance, optimism feels better in the moment, right? right. It's, yep, you know, that's the, true. defensive pessimism does not feel good in the moment. You know, it's not mm-hmm. pleasant, uh, but it does, it, it may get you doing the right things in certain circumstances. So, so, you know, it depends on your situation, Daniel, as to whether, whether you're <laughs> choosing the right approach. Well, you talk about how defensive pessimism is basically, you know, maintaining a relatively low level of expectation despite a despite a history of success. I like the idea of tempering your expectations. I think that that's important for anyone is to if you have expectations that are too high and you don't meet them, then you're going to be upset. If you just lower them and make them reasonable, you know, things are all right. I think that's the problem. I think my problem here, Stuart. All right, I'm just going to grind an axe really quick. Okay. I think my problem is that when, when it comes to pessimism. I think people, and I think this happened in in one of my previous episodes where someone kind of accused me of looking at things or finding reasons to not like something, right? And I don't think that that's really the case because I think we believe that pessimism is inherently bad. And if you, and if you don't have this rosy view of the world, then you are somehow, you know, you are somehow bad for the world or your, or your view is not healthy. And I just, I don't think that that's very true. And your book was the first book where I was, where I realized, oh, this is what I do. Like, it's not terrible. Like, like, pl- you know, imagining a worst case scenario, like plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Exactly. That's what yeah. I do. I, you know, you, cause you never want to be caught on your heels. You know, it's better to have something you, to want to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. You know, exactly. I, I, you know, I was a boy scout, right. You know, always be prepared, Stuart. But yeah. I love this in the book because it kind of in some ways validated my approach to the world, which I feel like has been crapped on uh, for, <laughs> for most of my existence. So I want to thank you for that. Well, and I want to give that welcome. gift to the world. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I'm always wanting to help people feel better about themselves. Still a psychologist at heart. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, now let's talk about, let's talk about the I'm in control part, because this is where we get into some of my favorite parts of delusion, which are ritual superstitions. And especially as it comes to sports, Uh, I don't know how big of a baseball fan you are, but baseball is riddled with superstitions, good luck charms, good luck rituals, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you talk in the book, you talk about Justin Tucker, who um, is arguably the most accurate kicker in NFL history. I mean, he kicked a 66 yard field goal that was so accurate. It hit the goal, the middle of the goalpost and then rolled in and it was a successful <laughs> field goal, uh, which is, but, but the, the amazing part wasn't that he, he made it. It was that it was so accurate. It was still in the middle of the goalpost from 66 yards out. And he has, a, I didn't know this, but he has a whole ritual where he lays out his uniform or, or, or you know, does this whole thing. Now, you tell me a little bit about this, where it comes from, and 
I'm going to spoil it up front, the psychological advantage that this can have on people. Okay, so this is this is I mean sports and and I would say that uh, baseball, as you suggest, is is a really just it's part of the lore of the game and mm. and the thing about baseball is it's it's a slow game and so there's time to do a lot of these things. You you notice by the way it's you, cerebral, you, Stuart. It's cerebral. Yes, exactly that too. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's second brain. It's, it's yeah. It's system two. Got it. System yeah. two yeah. game definitely. No, <laughs> most people can't figure out all the rules. The uh, the <laughs> basketball on the other hand is a very fast game and there aren't yeah. that many i mean other than free throw rituals there are some mm -hmm. of those and things and, and pre-game things but during the course of the game there's no time for superstition so right. so uh yeah it's uh you know the the thing is is that uh you know you do have time to fill you and especially <laughs> yeah. especially in a baseball game you yeah. want to win very badly and yeah. and so it provides a sense of what we call psychologists call the illusion of control. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are in baseball, there are individual superstitions that people have, but there are also our team superstitions, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, rally caps and things like that. And the whole yeah. thing about don't, don't talk to the pitcher if they have a no hitter going, <laughs> right? You know, you know all that stuff. So, yeah. so there are. That's that's what I'm saying. It's part of the lore of the game. It's it's mm -hmm. part of the culture of baseball. Definitely. Yeah, and, it's fun. And uh, but it is fun. And and it does. I mean, whether or not it actually helps players perform, I'll say this: it's obvious for anyone who's superstitious that it makes them feel better doing it than not doing it in the moment Definitely. while they're doing it. Right? Yeah. They they wouldn't do it otherwise if it made them feel bad. So mm -hmm. so it obviously has some kind of a soothing effect uh, while they're doing it and it passes the time. Um, but but whether it actually translates into better performance or not is not it's, it's a little unclear. There have been some studies that have tried to get a handle on that and, and the results are conflicting and, and mm -hmm. not not clear. Uh, there is a there is a little bit more evidence for the fact that a ritual, you know, which I, I think the laying out of the the uniform might qualify uh, or some other things, but a, a, a longer string that you think of as a ritual prior to your playing, uh, there's some evidence from the laboratory studies that that does reduce anxiety and it and leading to better performance uh, in the game. But but you know the thing is is that the, the other thing about these athletic superstitions is that believe it or not, and it, maybe maybe it'll make sense to you, it's actually mm -hmm. the better players who are more likely to have them, right. and. And and the reason the reason is that if you're a bad player and you use a superstition, it's not really working for you very well, right? Whereas 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 if you're a good player, which may have nothing to do with the superstition at all, you know your superstitions seem to work more, and uh, and so it, it's an in interesting phenomenon. It's like a weird confirmation bias in a way, right? Like yeah. the more <laughs> the more you do it, if it works, uh, there was this great uh, Malcolm in the Middle episode where um, the father—I can't think of his name—but um, he was Walter White from Breaking Bad. Oh my God, I can't think of his name right now, but everyone's gonna know. And they're Cranston, screaming. Brian there you go, Brian Cranston. So he's got a three hundred, you know, game going. But every time he throws the ball and gets a strike, he does. The same ritual, but then something else changes. So, like, he takes a sip of, you know, a sip of Coke beforehand, gets a strike. But he then he realizes he scratched his foot. So, the next time he goes up, he's got to take a sip, scratch his foot. But then he realizes his hand went up, and then he's got to do that for the third one. And by the end, you know, by the ninth frame, he's doing a whole, you know, 10-minute, right. you know, Omar Garcia para at bat kind right. of, like, exactly. OCD thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's so much fun. But I think, you know, I think not only does it relieve that, that fear and anxiety, Stuart, but I think, in, as 
as you mentioned, it gives you that sense of control, which then leads to confidence. And I think it's these are it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's completely irrational and is from a logical sense is in no way controlling reality or changing physics or giving you an advantage, but because you believe it and, you know, believing perception is reality, you've now convinced yourself and you've calmed yourself down. And it's had this real world effect, which does change your performance. It's so backwards, Stuart, that rational (laughs) robotic people like you and I, this shorts us out, but we cannot deny its existence. It's true. And it's crazy. I mean, you've just gone through the process that I went through, you know, in the sense of here I have been, you know, trying to explain why people are superstitious and so forth for all these years and trying to convince others. And I and I had to sit back and say, well, look, you know, it it's working for them. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not my choice. I didn't grow up in that kind of a family. I don't have that, you know, but 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 who am I to say they should, you know, snap out of it and become more rational? You know, it's it, there's no real harm. I think there are some ways in which superstition can be dangerous or or sure. counterprodu- yeah, more counterproductive. But uh, but for, you know, athletics, you know, go for it. It's like, the one thing the one problem, of course, is you get somebody like uh, like Rafael Nadal, who mm-hmm. who literally delays the game. You know, and right. he, he's been warned for delay of game on yeah. a number of occasions because he's pulling out his shirt or doing whatever he's doing. <laughs> sure. yeah. Yeah. There's some of the guy who had to go to the bathroom and he got busted for, you know, taking six or seven minute bathroom breaks. I feel like that was more rules advantageous yeah. than, than ritual superstition. Um, yeah. But another thing that, that uh, this is, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself here, Stuart, but another thing that falls into this category that I am 100% guilty of is jinxes. Right. Mm. I cannot tell you there, there has to be. And if, if not you, someone, one of your colleagues has got to look into this because I think there is a real correlation between an announcer saying, well, he's, you know, he's made it, you know, 35 of his last 35 <laughs> free throws. So he's got these yeah. in the bag and, you know, on cue, bonk, bonk, yeah. misses two free throws. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, this, he's the most perfect kicker in NFL history. He can possibly miss this and shanks it to the left. Every time. And and in truth, I've been keeping an eye on this. Sports announcers are aware of this and they don't do it very often, but at least a third of the time, Stuart, and this is, you know, this uh, yeah. don't take this to the statistical bank, but almost a third of the time they do jinx. Have you looked into this or is this, you know, uh, what so have you done here I, academically? <laughs> I haven't personally, but but uh, actually Tom Gilovich in the psychology department at Cornell yeah. has done uh, some really interesting studies on jinxes and mm. and they do affect people. They really are real uh, in the sense that that people worry about them. He does these studies. There's a little bit different from what you're suggesting, but the, the, he does these studies where, where uh, that you you read a scenario, a story mm-hmm. about a, a person who's trying to get into Stanford Graduate School right. and yeah, really yeah. hard to get in, and and so uh, their mother buys them a, t- a sweatshirt that says Stanford before they've heard from. Right from the admissions office, right? Yeah. So in one version of the scenario, the person immediately puts it on and starts walking around campus with the Stanford thing. Mm-hmm. And then in the, other, in the other version, the person you know puts it away into a drawer uh, until later, right? Okay. And then the, yeah. the final question is like, what's the likelihood that the person is gonna get into Stanford? And, <laughs> and, yeah. and most people say that the person who wears it is less likely to get in because they're they're tempting fate, you know. They're yeah. sort of like, yeah. And uh, so so these are great studies. They, they pe- people are affected by them, and I don't I don't really know how it's got started, but it is a it is a thing. I think that 
in the in the in the you know the sweatshirt example the the uh, you know you're thinking about the future and mm -hmm. like how will you feel if you don't get in and you've been right. wearing this sweatshirt all around right and uh, and so that affects that affects the judgment of of whether the person's going to get in and that that worry about about the bad outcome in the future and uh, and the same obviously affects sports commentators too and and <laughs> right. so on it's like. I mean, you know, the, the the you don't you know you don't the streaks end naturally yeah. uh, whether you say they're going to end or not and so on and so, but uh, but it's very memorable if you're the one who says, <laughs> yeah. "Well, yeah. Da, 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 and then boom, yeah. right?" Yeah. There. Well, it's yeah. also strange to me. I mean, I'm look, I, I'm giving in here, Stuart. I'm gonna just use irrational illogic to to talk about irrational illogical things. But in that story, right, in the story about the Stanford example, yeah. you could also explain it by saying, well, maybe they were wearing the Stanford sweatshirt because they were overconfident. Well, doesn't overconfidence lead to better outcomes? And isn't that, you know, you could easily switch that around. It doesn't seem to work, which is weird because it should right. A plus B equals C, so B plus A should equal C, but it doesn't work like that. That's weird yeah. to me. And this is the, we're getting into that ground that shorts me out, Stuart. Well, this is, this is, I mean, that's right. I mean, you're, you're very, you want, you know, clever to think of that. The, the, the idea, you know, defensive pessimism, right? Mm -hmm. That, if you think about that, that's what putting it away in the drawer is all about, right? You don't right, want to, yeah. you, you don't want to, you know, be overconfident. And, and this is one of those situations again, where the, uh, you know, it's the, it is in fact the beginning of an enterprise, right? It is mm -hmm. not, it's not like you're in Stanford and now I'm confident I can get good grades and I'm going to work hard. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the different situation where I think it's most useful. Overconfidence in you know, at the beginning of an enterprise is where is where there could be a major downslide. Downslide, and uh, so so yeah, I I that you're right. That is that is a case where overconfidence doesn't work well. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's even just I mean, because I now I'm trying to use rationality to, to talk about Ill irrational things. That's my mistake. It's like Alice <laughs> going down into Wonderland trying to use you know Newtonian <laughs> physics, right? Right, um, right. Well, so now let's move on to what might be. Uh, the most derisive subject we're going to talk about, especially for most for for the women in the audience, and this is soulmates. Uh, now, I happen to agree with a lot of what you talked about. That this is you know mathematically implausible. We had this romantic idea of you know of who is right for us, who's perfect for us. You know, this without without a guiding force in the universe, right? Soulmates, it, it doesn't make any sense rationally. Yet, I mean, it is still a modern concept, really. I mean, from a from a human historical perspective. But a lot of people believe in this. You've got wedding vows that people buy into. Uh, it's it's crazy. Before I pass it off to you, I got to mention this Oscar Wilde quote, which which I loved. But it says that marriage is the triumph of imagination over intelligence, and second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience. Now that's I'm a cynic, and that's even a little too cynical for me. But it yeah. is hilarious, so I had to mention it. Yeah, I I, I am a divorced person, so <laughs> uh -oh. you know I I uh, you know. I love love that quote as well. It's, you know, he he was he's definitely onto something there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I know it's it's one of those things that that uh, uh, you know couples need to have more than just a rational view of their circumstance. I talk a lot about in the book about marriage vows, for example, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, everyone 
who gets married, as Oscar Wilde suggests, everyone who gets married has to be aware of the fact that 50% of marriages fail, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get up there and you, and in, in many, at least Christian ceremonies, they say, you know, I promise to love, honor, obey until death do us part, right? right. And, yeah. and, and some people have trouble saying that they they don't want to they don't want to do that they so they they uh, you know a, a more realistic marriage vow would be something like well uh, I really love you I really love you I really want us to to you know to live together forever as I'm right. standing here now I, I promise to do my best. Right. right. <laughs> you may want to clean it up a little bit, but I, I like where you're going with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, that's not going to sound really romantic to many Definitely other not. people and whether you're the recipient or the or the, the person saying it. And so. Right. Well, and, either there's and, a prenup, by the way, Stuart, there's a lot of those going no, know, around, too. too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, anyway, so so uh, it, it's it's an interesting thing that that um, there is there is some benefit to this sort of, you know, rosy eyed view of your partner and mm -hmm. uh, idealizing your partner within the context of a marriage or, or an ongoing relationship. And uh, that was a fun chapter to, to write. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. Uh, well, I mean, and I think, you know, not to look, I'm going to take a step back. I'm a romantic at heart. So let, let's let's put a little I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone, Stuart. Okay. Let's go optimist. Let's talk Rosie. I, you bring up a couple of great points about this, which is, you know, if you see yourself as a soulmate with your partner, that leads to you being more connected, right? And I mean, and that is the goal, you know, uh, you know the it, it, the delusion about, you talk about the soulmate wedding vow delusion, that is positive when you say from death to his part, because if both people buy into that, that's a positive feedback loop that in fact strengthens the relationship. So there are a lot of positive plenty of positive benefits to believing the person that you're with is who you're supposed to be with. Um, and, and if you believe in a God or a religion that that was chosen by a higher authority, well, right. what, what will deter you from straying or from finding someone else or looking for what's next more than that? I think it's extraordinarily positive. Yeah, it is. And, and, uh, you know, and it's not realistic, but, but, uh, <laughs> no, but no. the idea, but the idea that there is some kind of special bond between the two people, it's suddenly going to immediately lower the value of people outside the couple, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, there's something special, uh, which would be very difficult to find elsewhere. I mean, I, I right. give the example, right. as you know, at the very beginning of that chapter of being, uh, of a girlfriend who I was mm -hmm. talking to and I, made this, you know, I was just talking about something and in an offhand remark, I said, you know, but given the many millions of people in the world, I'm sure that there are many people we could have found and, you know, other people, and we would have been equally as happy as we are now. Right. And yeah. whatever I was about Girls to Girls love say, that, by the way, you, yeah. you old, so you old romantic. romantic. Yeah. And, uh, and whatever I was about to say after that, you know, got discarded very quickly because her reaction <laughs> was very swift and very negative. And, uh, and, and, you know, and that relationship didn't, didn't end up lasting. So, no, so, you know, no. yeah, yeah. so, I mean, no, I mean, I, we, I was very much in, in love with her and I, I yeah. think it was uh, reciprocated at that moment, but, but, mm -hmm. the, but I do think there's a possibility that my less than romantic view may have been, it wasn't obviously the only thing that, contributed 
contributed to our not sticking right. it out, but but uh, but it, it didn't it, help. We can agree it didn't help. It didn't help. Yeah. yeah, that was not a not a useful conversation. Well, I think you talk about even, you know, even opening the conversation to doubt in your con- connect your connectiveness, that word, your connection. That's the word. There you go. Why right. don't we use the word in the dictionary? Your connection uh, that can just destroy the destroying the idea of soulmates, you know, can kind of put the cracks and fissures in that relationship right from the get go. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You know, there's there's a funny thing that you put in the book. Book, which I thought was brilliant. I'd never heard of this before, but you talk about a Palm Beach attorney who wanted to change wedlock to wed lease. You know, have a being being a wedding. You know, being in a marriage contract for five to ten years, renewable upon mutual consent. You know, it's kind of like a sports signing, right? You don't sign a you know an agent right. to a, you know a, a, a player to ten years without knowing what they're capable of. And the ring's a signing bonus. It all works from a logical standpoint. I would love for this to be a thing, but there's no way. 50% of the population would sign on to this. And I think we know what 50% of the population I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but I love the idea, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was funny, I, you know, because I have, you know, having been divorced, right, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. very well aware of the the failure rate. And and I thought this was a clever idea, not very romantic. And as, no. as far as I can tell, <laughs> the wed lease concept has not has not caught on yet. I mean, had a, it was really like a lease. You, you would put in a deposit, uh, and if you if you broke the contract before the end of the term, then yeah. you would give up the deposit. You know, there would be no, <laughs> no no property would remain this, you know, this your own. Each person's yeah. property would still remain. It was really, really very rational. Yeah. And as a result, uh, has probably failed miserably as an idea. Love is not rational. Marriage is not rational. I mean, it's again, you're taking rules that apply in one area, applying them somewhere else. And from plenty of experience, I know that 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 doesn't work. Uh, Well, let me ask you a quick question. We didn't get to the free will delusion. I would love to talk about that. Do you have 10 minutes to do a quick bonus episode to discuss that? Awesome. Great. I I can't wait to get into that. Well, let's talk about how people can get in touch with you, get in touch with your book. If you're watching this on YouTube, as you should be, you can see the book right Right behind you. Uh, I'm going to cut to your, your shot right now. You can see the uses of delusion. Where can people find it? Where can people find you and get in touch with you? Well, the book is is available every, all everywhere you normally find books. Uh, you can get it through your local bookstore. You can also get it uh, uh, online, all the online places. And it's available in Kindle and audio book form. Um, as far as me, I am, I am, uh, you know, I have a very unique name, Stuart yep. Vise, V-Y-S-E. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I have a website that is stuartvise.com and I'm on Twitter and Instagram under the same, same name. So the, all the usual social media things. So that's great. And, you know, if you want to get in touch with the show, fascinating nouns on Twitter, fascinating noun, Wait, let me reverse that. Fascinating Noun on Twitter, Fascinating Nouns on Facebook. I say it enough. FascinatingNouns.com <laughs> is where you get it. Uh, well, this is, you know, I got to tell you, Stuart, this has been a fascinating discussion, a great book, and it made me realize that we're all delusional to, to some degree. It's positive, uh, and I think that's a good thing. We should embrace this, and I think maybe you and I, you know, I think we're kindred spirits, but this is kind of breaking down our view, our rational grip on reality. Maybe it's not healthy, uh, but this helped me out a lot, Stuart. So thank you so much for this. Danny, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thanks for having me on. You got to Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. 
The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel G. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.